Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. All right, we're doing a campfire chat, everyone. It's Glenn James here. I'm one of the hosts of My Millennium Money, if not the host. Uh, we've got Vince Scully from Life Show for joining us on the campfire chat. Welcome back, Vince. G'day, Glenn. Ready to crank that uh, marshmallow? Yeah, they're stash. running a bit short with yeah. supply chain problems. There has been, and um, you know we've got our equipment here that's running on supply chain microchips that have got in in time. <laughs> But also, we've got John Winters, CEO of Superhero, on the podcast today. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Is this where I say winter is coming? Winter is coming. I've heard them all. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I didn't... Yeah, anyway. So, basically... Snow joke. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So, basically, the Campfire Chats, we're just chatting about superannuation today. I did an episode uh, a little while ago with John, just around what Superhero was doing. I invited him on may or may not have been part of a commercial agreement, but I invited him back on to join us um, for this chat. And uh, we're going to talk about everything to do with superannuation today. Um, so if you are interested in learning more about superannuation, hang around and listen to this episode. But I will say, you know, when we do these campfire chats, we don't aim them at beginner level. Um, it's a way that we can go deep, we can go narrow on a certain topic without stopping and explaining what an acronym might mean. So, if you are a beginner, absolutely listen, uh, but it could be a bit of a deep end jump. Uh, But we're trying to scratch the itch for all our community members. And if you are new to My Millennial Money, thanks for joining us and thanks for uh, having a listen to the campfire chat. So, yeah, should we get down and dirty? We can. Let's do it. So, I just wanted to... So, I went in the Facebook group and... I asked people back in January, and this is a result of my laziness and going overseas and cancelling this interview <laughs> a couple of times. Sorry about that, John. Um, but also not sorry, do what I want. Um, and I, I asked a heap of questions. Well, I asked for people to write questions about superannuation. And I've curated a whole heap of questions here, but I wanted to kind of frame the discussion. I want to talk about the concepts of super first. And Daniel Inglis uh, in the Facebook group, he asked... How long before the current super system is scrapped or changed, or will it stay as it is forever despite the flaws? Now, there's a lot there. There is. And when I look at, in terms of a retirement system worldwide, ours doesn't have that many flaws. No. Am I right or wrong? Well, that's why it's called superannuation. Mm. It used to be ordinary annuation before it was bitten by a spider. Right. <laughs> I think you need to leave your humour at the door, Vince. <laughs> um, you mean the podcast is not the place for dad jokes? No, not at all. Um, I mean, thankfully, the last couple of federal elections, the government have kept their mitts off the system. Hmm. 
It is a it is it is one that is very political though. Mm. Um, and you know, if you if you if you step back and have a look at the system as a whole, it is it is pretty good. You know, we don't have we don't have the same sort of systems overseas like we do here. Um, it's government mandated retirement savings, um, which in the grand scheme of things is is really good. I guess when you have these sorts of systems, what is what is happened over the last 30 or so years is you've you've got these sort of closed door board boardrooms who are making these financial decisions and you know potentially there's decisions that are made that are in the best interests of certain people and not in the best interests of others um, and I think that is that is an issue with the system um, but when you look globally you know that's an issue with multiple sectors, you know, particularly across the financial system. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I look back early 2000s, um, maybe up to 2010, it was like every 10 minutes, the government of the day just saw super as a big tax pot of extra money for the federal budget, right? And I think that stopped somewhat because remember, like you used to be able to put 50 grand a year in uh, pre-tax. Well, there used to be no limit. Well, that's right. Well, the, for you what's guys, an RBL? <laughs> what's an RBL, Vince? A reasonable benefit limit. Yeah. And there's transitional RBLs. Yeah. The, so, boom, the boomers got all the uh, all the money in super. And all the property in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I think, you know, we are at the point now where it, it they have taken away all that kind of, I don't know, tax haven-esque type vibes. Um, you know, when they changed the system, everyone, remember that year where you could put up to a million dollars in mm-hmm. Right before the 2008 crash, as I recall. Mm. So, there there has been a lot of changes. But I guess, John, from all the work that you've been doing, because, you know, starting a super fund in Australia, you can't just walk in and, like, it's not just a, oh, I'll start a super fund, like a fair bit of work. With your business planning, like, how do you hedge legislative risk? Can't yeah. say that, right? Legislative risk. Legislative. Legislative. Yeah. Something, yeah. Like, um, how legal, do you manage that? Legal risk. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah it was, it's interesting. You know, Superhero um, was actually started in late 2017. We only launched the uh, the trading product in, in 2020. So that's due to years of work um, navigating the, the, the industry um, from a regulatory point of view. And it's, you know, because of the, the industry it is, there is so much red tape. Um, and that that's there to protect members, um, but navigating navigating that world to be able to launch a super fund was extremely difficult. It's it's not easy. Um, so there are there are significant um, you know rules in place to protect people. Um, you know I think the, the, there's always you know there's always loopholes to those um, where where some operators do you know try and exploit that. And the government has been very good in making sure that 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 doesn't happen. Um, anymore, um, but yeah, it's 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 not easy bringing a super fund to market, particularly one that gives you so much control, mm. um, and at the same time, it brings a huge amount of transparency when you've got got that control as well, which is which is not common across the across the industry, particularly when you're looking at those sort of retail and industry funds. Have you felt any pressure from incumbent big money? Uh, in the super space, like yeah. the, the the bigger super funds. Yeah. Um, look, I think I think you know we're we're pretty small. Um, mm. You know, we we 
to date sort of flown flown under the radar. But you know, I think I think there's there's certainly competitive forces. Um, you know, it's pretty it's pretty aggressive. You know how the bigger funds do go after members, um, and you can see that through the advertising campaigns and things. And you know that those campaigns are uh, run using members' assets. Um, so interestingly, IFM is the twentieth largest advertiser in Australia. Really, hmm. number twenty on ad spend. IFM is industry funds management. Oh, sorry, um, uh, I- IF. A. IFA, Industry Funds Australia. Or ISA? Yeah. ISA? Sorry, ISA. 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 Yeah. Industry yeah. Super Australia. There's yeah. so many of those acronyms. acronyms. Yeah. 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 They don't, and, they don't, and they don't run a super fund. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. But they're batting on behalf of their yeah, members. It's all on behalf of. Yeah. But, but where do they get tw- their money? <laughs> the 20th biggest advertiser in the country. Wow. Ahead of some really big consumer names. Yeah. Before or after Clive Farmer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well well yeah. after Clive Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> it's $45 million. Um, in 2020, I think. Really? It's a lot of money. You're amazing what you find out by reading Mumbrella. Yeah. Yeah, so Mumbrella's the industry marketing thing, yeah. isn't it? Advertising agency. World. Trade press, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? They publish these lead tables. Mm. So, I mean, what would the flaws be of superannuation? Like, have you guys come across any on behalf of your... You know, Vince, your members, and John, your, I guess, members or clients, whatever you call yeah. them. Look, I don't know if I don't know if that's necessarily a flaw, but I guess the industry has trained the Australian people to not care. They don't want you to care. It's hand over ten percent of your salary every month. A lot of people, and it was interesting for me when we started. A lot of people consider it as a tax, mm. but it's hand over ten percent of your money every month, and. You know, the hand goes up and says, "Don't ju- you just give me the money? I'll take care of it." Oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you how much I charge to to look after it, and I'm not going to tell you what you invest in. Like, if that was money out of your wallet, you'd say, "Are you, are you mad? Mm. I'm not giving you your money. Like, tell me what you're going to do with it and how much you're going to charge me." <laughs> so there's this there's this um, trained sort of helplessness when it comes to super, where there's no engagement. There's no, there's no ability to have a say. There's no ability to, to, to do anything with it until you turn 65. So everyone forgets about it. Yeah. And the, the analogy that, that I use is, you know, if I gave you, if I said, you know what, I'm going to buy a brand new Rolls Royce, cost a million dollars, but I'm going to put it in your garage. I'm going to cover it. So you can't, you can't even look at it. And I'm going to give you the keys in 20 years time. Oh, it's pretty cool. You'd still mm. go into the garage every day for the first month and have a look at it and you know, to see if you can see what mm. the wheels look like. But after a while, you just go, oh, it's too high luck. But, it's, but it's interesting. I know it's there. I don't care about it. I'll get it in 20 years' time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that only 300,000 Australians change super every year, and yet 40% say they intend to. Mm. But I guess I think, you know, to your point, John, like that hasn't necessarily been a function of the cloak and dagger behind the scenes. I think it's more been the back 20 years ago, for example, social media wasn't a big deal. Technology wasn't a big deal. And I think, thankfully, even podcasts like this where we are talking about it, you know, you've got, you know, good tech with super. And I think the accessibility thing is probably a big deal. But also there are a lot of fundies who just want to take money and manage it. Yep. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest flaw in the system that you highlight there, that we've... Given Australians control over their retirement savings, 
and yet we haven't given them the tools or the information to actually make the decision. And you know, Australian super funds rank bottom of the world in terms of disclosures in a category of their own. So if you look at the Morningstar... But it's legislated. They don't need to disclose well, what they that, hold. That's right, but there's nothing to stop them actually doing so. Yeah. But they're squealing like stuck pigs to now they're being asked to, to do it. And you know, if you want to look at what in Australian super terms looks like the gold standard disclosure, you look at the Australian super disclosure and it still only lists, well, it lists the individual securities in the 41% that's other that the listed portion, but doesn't list anything in the derivatives and only lists the name of the unlisted assets, which is 41% of the fund. So 59% you've got no disclosure for, really. Yeah. And they're the best. And uh, well, I made the comment in my book, and there's a graph in there for everyone who's read it, that there's question marks over Australian super because their quote-unquote balanced portfolio, whatever, mm. whatever you want to call it, I put it against another, I think a Ware Super or something, their fund, yes, it's the quote-unquote best in the class, but it's behaving like a 90-10 mm. fund, mm. not a... Yeah, but it, a, came out, it came out that some of them were running balanced funds with like 93% exactly. growth assets. And that's exactly my point. Yeah. So we can't just take it as read that, oh, what's on the label is what's oh, on the box. But how do you police that if box? none of it's disclosed? Well, I think we go, well, to a point, any of our listeners... We don't need the policing because we're smart enough to actually look at the, the details. But yeah. again, back conversely, there needs to be some, I don't know. So I, I had a bit of a rant in the book around, you know, they've got this, um, you know, the standard risk measure. Like, that's cute. What does it mean? Yeah. Like, no one- Very little. No one knows yeah. that. Yeah. But maybe, what about we start and we say, in Australia, if you use the word balanced fund- it's bloody balanced at 50-50 or But it's not because if you go on the ASIC website, it says 70-30. Exactly. Or whatever that is, yeah. I think there needs to be some standardised terms yeah. where if you, in the super world, use the word balanced in a managed fund, it can't have an asset allocation of more than 70% growth. It used to mean 60-40. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Vanguard do it well with balances in, it actually balances like on a scale, 50-50, yeah. like- Call me yep. crazy, mm. but and we've got we've actually got the Vanguard uh, Diversified Balanced Index Fund mm. in our in our super fund, and um, you know some people have said you know what about seventy thirty and um, it's just you know it can be just a portion of your mm. of your overall um, fund, but you know it's times like what we're seeing now with Russia and Ukraine mm. where that's actually insulating some of the volatility. That, that people don't realise. So it'll be interesting to see how some of those ninety-three percent growth balanced funds are actually performing in yeah. in well. Well, the, when you're not repricing forty percent well, of your fund, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, it's probably going to be pretty smooth if um, yeah. you know, market town in your local centre mm. doesn't get in your local regional centre doesn't get revalued. But yeah, I think it's a that's probably you know if we get down to the biggest point, I think the biggest flaw is the marketing rules. Mm-hmm. With superannuation. Yeah. I mean, Senator Hume on the radio this morning was trying to heavy super funds to sell out on their Russian assets. You go, um, A, it's small, and yeah. B, is this really the right time to do it? Mm. Um, that obviously you can stop investing more, but to go dumping Russian assets when the ruble's down and the world hates Russia is probably not a prudent investment decision. Mm. 
It's funny because I commented on an AFR, you know, at the time of, when are we recording this? At the start of March, just this week, I commented on an AFR article and I said, in these times, you know, if you are index investing, we get what you're given. That's right. <laughs> like, sure, Russia will be part of an index. It's not going to be 30%. No. Um, and then that's conversely, um, maybe an argument for active management that if you want to exclude certain markets, but guess what? You pay for active management. Mm. So, where I'm from, you can't have it all. If you want better you or options, you pay for options. Yeah, but that just comes back to diversification, right? Mm. If you go all 100% passive management and then the whole world tanks and you go, oh, but it's uh, like what happened? Like you could understand you need diversification across management types as mm. well. Like mm. it's not just, you know, all all. Uh, one or the other. Yes. I must admit, I don't like this passive word that people bandy around in relation to index management. It's not actually passive. Your decision of which index to invest in is an active decision. Yeah, the asset allocation yeah. is active. Which is what matters. Yeah. And your choice of index. So, you know, do I, when I'm investing in emerging markets, do I buy the MSCI index or do I buy the FTSE index? Yeah. They're different assets. Yeah. And... You can choose one from the other based on cost or even past performance. I saw a, I saw a chart the other day. It said, I know we've sort of gotten off the, the topic. There's, no, about, there's no topic here. It's um, a campfire. Uh, campfire. I can't, I can't remember how long the period was. I think it was 60 years. And if you had held the S&P 500 over that whole time, the performance was like 28,000% or something. But if you missed the top 10 days... Of each decade, so 10 days per 10 years, your total return over 60 years was like 58%. So, that speaks to don't dick around with trying to time the market. Well, that's that's the argument on passive versus active, right? Mm. If you just buy and hold, you know, the Warren Buffett put Mm. put money in a a passive fund instead of with an active manager. Other than it's not what he actually does. No, well, he's an active manager in his <laughs> own right. Follow, follow what he does, not what he says. <laughs> he's a yeah. uh, he's a renovator's delight yeah. type yeah. of guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, your point, but your point about you know, the missing out the top ten days or the top twenty days, um, the problem with that is that actually the worst ten days happen adjacent to the best ten days. Yeah. So, could, so you can't been, mi- you can't miss it. Could have been the top ten and top yeah the, and the, and the worst yeah, ten. I've, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, variations on that theme and you can't avoid the bad days without also ba- avoiding yeah. the good days. Yeah. I think that's the real point about timing, that if you were smart enough to avoid the top 10 worst days, mm. you've almost certainly avoided the top 10 good ones as well because you can't get out and back in mm. in that time. So maybe a, a question you know, without notice for you, John, like you run a super fund. So you are having members that entrust you to manage their money and not yeah okay yeah there's so but there's a big but and and the but is well we actually run the company and we've got a trustee who manages yep the money with your fund and the trustee you talked about you um you want to give people choice with their money but if it was easy for everyone to set up a self-managed super fund and it was easy for everyone just to DIY, the returns would be useless and you'd better off just sticking it in, you know, a balanced fund at your local super fund. But you've tried to scratch that itch with 
um, giving people some buy-in and control and a bit of a taste of something they're passionate about. And if you do want to have a listen to the deep dive episode with John, we'll put a link in the show notes. But to just talk to us conceptually with your fund and then we'll just move on. But around that core satellite thing with some of the options. Yeah. So, so we're, we're not a self-managed super fund, first of all. It's, it is a, it's a, it's a retail fund. Um, and, and the other key is we don't manage money. So we, we, we're not money managers. We are effectively the infrastructure, a facilitator. So what, what that means is we give you two core, you know, two core pieces that we, that, you know, we sort of live and breathe every day at Superhero. One is control and the other one is transparency. So we, we want you to have the ability to see where your super's invested and we want you to have the control to make a decision on how it's invested. Now, for a lot of our members, they don't use all of that control. They know exactly what they're invested in. So, so the way that our so we've got a pro, we've got a, an account type called control. What it does is it ensures you have a minimum of twenty five percent in that Vanguard balanced fund. So you've got a a minimum level of diversification. And then you can invest in in a whole range of different ETFs and ASX three hundred um, to to build out your portfolio. Now, what we typically see is people do come on and they 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 buy a whole range of ETFs, um, thematic ETFs. Um, they might you know buy buy some more sort of growth index funds as well, um, and that is almost like the core. So they're building out really this ultra diversified portfolio using a whole range of different ETFs um, and then supplementing with, you know, some growth stocks or some individual shares, which becomes that sort of core. So you've got this sort of ultra diversified core with the satellite shares being individual shares. Mm. So, you know, whether those are mining shares, whether they're growth, um, you know, tech stocks, whatever they are. Um, you and, know, that's and, how they- and have you got um, limits on how much you can have in... Yeah, so we call it we we call it our responsible investing layer. So in credit and with buy now pay later, you would have heard responsible lending. Um, so we've built this whole responsible investing layer in. So what it does is it limits the amount you can put into each security. So you couldn't go and twenty percent. It's twenty percent on on uh, on shares. Yeah, and and then you can go up to one hundred percent on some of the really diversified ETFs. If it was something that gave you, you know, sort of leverage to the downside, um, you know, which you could use as a hedge, that that has a, a, a smaller amount that you can invest in. So it gives you flexibility within, you know, uh, you know, some sort of um, bandwidth. Yeah, and because I just think, like, uh, and everyone, I will encourage you to go to um, the episode we did with John if you wanted to deep dive on his product. Um, so thanks for explaining that, but. I just think, like, I see all these posts in the Facebook group and people say, oh, I've invested in these eight ETFs. Like, what do I do? I'm like, you're you're overcooking it. And the problem is you'll have suboptimal returns overall. And it's, almost, it's yeah. starting in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of those comments about, well, I, I'm getting started. What, what should I buy? You know, I'm going to buy Afric or I'm going to buy Fast or VGS or whatever. Was the thing you've actually got to start with is asset allocation, 
because it drives 70% of your returns. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I think what I'm getting at is, you know, I, I like, and I'll, I'm going to make an announcement in a minute that my whole audience will hear for one of the first times ever from Glenn James. But I think it's striking that balance with... Have we got background music to come in just to build... Nate will do it. I'll tell him when to cue it. It's striking the balance of being invested, quote unquote, with your um, personality and your interest into your super. So I can have that core and I can choose some small satellites that scratch my investment itch to keep me interested, but not allowing people to have three ASX funds on your platform because it's going to lead to suboptimal returns. If you're dicking around and spreading everything too thin and you, you know, you just overweight in, you know, what if, you know, if someone was like, like really big and long on Afterpay and then, you know, the shat hit the fan or Magellan Financial Group or something like that, like it will flush you. Mm. And this is the whole thing I want people to know. No matter how good the brand is, no matter how good the company is, no matter how good the story is, buying individual stocks doesn't remove you from the diversification risk, the concentration risk. Like it just doesn't. There's, mm. It's like gravity. Whatever you do, you can't get around it. Can you? No. You, you need to be diversified. Um, and it, it can work really well when, you know, if you bought Afterpay at the IPO or soon afterwards – you would have made shatload, yeah, m- massive returns. But you know, at the same time, if you had bought it at the peak, you'd be down significantly now. Even after the merger, it's down, it's down sixty percent since the merger. Mike, yeah. just right. Oh, sorry, Mike. it's down sixty percent since the merger. Mm. So, yeah, so so that that's a really good example, and a lot of the time, it leads back to people getting, you know, almost emotional about their investments, mm. and you know, thinking, yeah, but you know how much money's been made in the past and, you know, it's going to keep going up. And then you sort of get this, you know, you might have bought it at $30 and it's gone to 40 and you sort of, mm. well, I'm not selling that. That's my baby and, you know, I'm not going to sell it. And like you do, you get this emotional attachment to investments. It happens to the best of us. Mm. But you've got to remember that your shares won't love you back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got to treat your investing like a first Tinder date. We're just doing it to check it out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so swipe was, right or swipe uh, left? Uh, <laughs> bad analogy, but... <laughs> Just one of um, one of my my old clients when I was when I was a broker um, and and a good friend now he's actually an investor and superhero. Um, he he was telling me about an investment that he made. He he runs a, a an active fund, um, and you know he's ruthless when it comes to his investment strategy, um, and did all this work. Flew to various countries to to do research on. On his on his investment, and then went and placed a number of trades against a, an entire sector, and the goal was to return five percent. And within a month, he returned five percent, sold the whole position, and the the year later, the trade would have returned him m- multiples of his initial investment, but he stuck to it. That is the that is the investment strategy, and when it hit your desired return that's where you've sort of made the decision and I, I i don't think a lot of people think of investing like that mm. you know so you can either you can buy the vanguard global diversified balance whatever it is and hold it for the next 30 years and not think about it but if you're buying fortescue or afterpay or or b 
BHP or whatever, and you are expecting it to go to $52, you almost got to think, well, if it gets to there, what are you going to do? Yeah, that's right. I always buy the Vanguard Global Fund because its ticker is my initials. VGS. Vincent Goff. Goff. Sully. Is that it? <laughs> Gerard. Gerard. Scully, not Sully, whatever. Now, he's the guy who put the plane so down. That's right. He, he took yeah. the plane for a dive. Hey, um, So much for not getting emotionally attached to a stock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Vince, you emotional being. <laughs> All right, Nate, cue the deep mystical music now. So, guys, I'm announcing today that I no longer own any direct individual equities. Really? Mm-hmm. Very impressive. Panic sold? Profit taking. Is that, a, is that a flex? Well, it just speaks to... So this, does this include ETFs? Oh, no, like I hold ETFs, but yep. just no individual companies. Yeah. Uh, because I, I'll, I've taught and spoke about for many years, like with your investing, like I personally don't have more than 10% of my portfolio net worth or whatever that is in, you know, pick a small number in individual shares because you get emotional and you do dumb things. Mm. But if you want to scratch the itch with your investing and you like an individual company or whatever, sure, buy it, whatever. But just chill out for 10 minutes because you're going to do your ass. And um, at the COVID drop in 2020, Mm -hmm. I did a bit of shopping just for my own interest. So during March? March 2020, mm-hmm. I, I did some shopping and I I just decided to rebalance the other day and close those positions and I'm just in ETFs now in my investment trust. Nice. There you go. Well done. So yeah. you don't have to buy it. Like I'm an investor, but I just don't do individual stocks. I know you don't do individual nope. stocks, Vince. No, but, I, but you know, I bought the, um, I bought the, the NASDAQ 100 ETF. That would have and, had a um, haircut recently, wasn't it? I think I, I think I put $100 into it. It was one of the first trades we, we ever did on Superhero. Because you've got free and brokerage. I didn't get free brokerage. <laughs> I had to pay five bucks for it. Um, the, the return I had after a few months, I was up like 30-something percent. So I'm not, I'm not up that. I only had 100 bucks. Was, so really, <laughs> was that a flex? <laughs> <laughs> well, I only had $100 in, so it was you know, 30 bucks. But you, know, you can still make solid returns off ETFs. And you're diversified. So, yes, mm. the, the market's dropped mm. since, since then. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it, you don't have to – it's not like individual shares are the only place you're going to make money. And I think like – because and it was just Australian equities. Like I don't – I mean, I didn't ever hold international direct equities on, you know, any exchanges overseas because I hate paperwork and – you know, everyone's like, oh, I need to buy Apple and I need to buy Tesla. I'm like, you obviously haven't used Superhero to buy US shares. No, I haven't. <laughs> well, twenty percent of NDQ no. is in those stocks. Well, and no, that's what no, I'm no, saying. No. You're going yeah, exactly. to have so yeah. much exposure yeah. anyway yeah. in your run-of-the-mill super fund. Yeah. So what are we doing here, people? Yeah. Like, in fact, there's enough Apple exposure in this room. Yeah, that's right. To pay for most people's retirements. Yeah. yeah. So I just think you don't have to. You can be engaged and have a satellite of ETFs. Yeah. So, hey, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, we're back. Let's get into some meat Here's one for Vince. Amy Crease. how can you use the First Home Super Saver Scheme to your advantage? Can you give us a 101? Well, the deal with the First Home Super Saver Scheme, I wish someone, I wish Scotty from marketing actually did some marketing and came up with some better names. Um, it's so hard to say. Um, this is a pure tax play. So all you do is you put some money in, you get tax benefit, you take it out um, in simple terms. There's a lot of Hoops you've got to go through to do that, but this is not an investment strategy. Um, this is purely tax, and it's worth, well, before they increased the limits, it was worth about $5,500. It's probably worth about ten now. I haven't done the maths. Um, and, you know, anybody who is saving for their first home and qualifies should have this as part of their deposit saving strategy. There's almost no reason not to. Mm-hmm. Um, that even if you change your mind and decide not to buy a property and want your money back, the penalty is not actually that that great. Is it? A, is the penalty? Does the penalty net out at the same rate as you're paying tax anyway, or is there an no, actual? There is, there is, there a is actually penalty. a penalty. It's, it's not very big. Yeah, and but it's at, worth the risk as an option on buying property. If you're reasonably confident you want to buy property, um, to live in, to live in, as your first home, as your first home. <laughs> In Australia. In Australia. <laughs> um, it's almost a no-brainer. But there are some traps for young players, um, and there may be some big positives in having a separate super fund to park that money in. Mm. Do you guys have many members that are using that? We've, we've had a few people, yeah, we've had a few people apply to have the, the money released. released. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Um, like but, you would, yeah. But it's, it, but, you know, we we do a huge amount of, or huge number of first home buyers at Love Shopper and, you know, most people have this as part of their strategy. Mm. It's not enough to cover the deposit on a Sydney or Melbourne house. <laughs> um, so you need a separate strategy as well. I don't know why the government, <laughs> they made it very convoluted. Yeah, like, why wouldn't they just go, there's convoluted. an extra federal grant of $5,000 cash? then all the house prices go up by five grand. <laughs> I think it probably yeah, is I a better know. way of targeting support to first home buyers mm. rather than a blanket reduction in stamp duty or grant um, because it does mean you have to save the money over a number of years. So it's not quite pouring fuel on the house price furnace, mm. but it is unnecessarily complicated. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes to the YouTube video that I did with Vince mm-hmm. on this, and the numbers 
the limits have increased since we did that video, but the concepts remain the same. That's right. But all I would say is anyone interested in doing this, you're a Superfund member, you pay membership fees, call your Superfund and ask them what their process is because mm. they'll have information. They will. And if they don't, well... You better have information, John. <laughs> yeah, look, I think there's. You know, we do have information on it. I think the the challenge is, um, you know, it could be deemed as financial advice if you sort of say how you should do something. Well, I think it's so I think just factual. Like yeah. this is the process if you want to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the process is you've got to make contributions above and beyond your employer contribution, and you can apply it to have them released. And I would say if anyone is saving for a first home and you do have some cash savings. It doesn't have to be this thing where you get your employer to salary sacrifice extra amount. You can put it in yourself. You can. Adjust, make an adjustment with a super fund to say it's a, um, an, an extra personal deductible contribution. Uh, and you might do that just before the end of the... Fu- like if it was May and you wanted to buy your first home in July or August and you had a cash deposit of 20 grand saved... You might be able to flush it in and take it out. Put it in, take it out. Mm. Uh, I think it's fifteen grand a year, so you might do fifteen thousand dollars before the end of June. To a maximum of fifty thousand, yeah. And then do the balance after. So there are strategic options that you can. uh, So it doesn't have to be, you know, cash flowed out. You can put, you can flush the payment through. Yeah. If your um, employer does support salary sacrifice contributions, and most do these days, it's often a good thing to do if you get a pay rise. Mm. Yeah sale of sacrifice before you've ever got it and you'll never notice it. That's right. Speaking of um, salary sacrifice into super, Kartik Kundra said, at what stage of your life should you start salary sacrificing into super? Hmm. Um, this is one of those things where you're trading off you know, a mathematical answer against a psychologically right answer. Um Mathematically, you should do as much as you can, as early as you can, because that's going to give you the biggest lifetime bang for your buck. Because the money's invested well, further tax-free, yep. you've got tax deductions on the way in. That's right. So you almost try and get close to what boomers used to be able to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you'll find that actually millennials have the bulk of the super savings, just because there's more of them and they've been in super longer. Yeah. Well, there's no millennial in university now. That's right. Well in a linear fashion. Sure, you can go back to university, but there's, yeah. in terms of... Well, the first million is turning 40. So, you know, this, mm-hmm. this is not the TikTok generation. No, that's right. Um, but setting aside, um, the yeah, so it's a trade-off between financial outcomes... He's trying to make us feel old. See what he's doing there? I, did you feel that? Yeah, I'm like one of the youngest in this room. <laughs> tech, on that basis, so am I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm the fourth youngest here. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. But anyway, setting that aside, um, but you've got to give up flexibility and access to the money. To your point earlier, John. Um, and so, if you don't have an emergency stash, if you have credit card debt, if you haven't got a deposit in your first home, you've got kids you want to put through through school. Well, maybe there are more practical, flexible uses for this money, which may not give you a bigger bang over your lifetime, but maybe from a lifestyle yeah, you perspective, live. you've got to live. I reckon that's a big challenge because a lot of people are talking about saving and budgeting and putting extra money into super. And you know, I think that there's a lot of people out there like, but 
put it in from where? Where does it? Where does that money come yeah, from? I think that's the challenge. You know, life goes on. So and, and locking up savings for for that long yeah. is. I, is I don't tough. have my bag here, but one of the reasons like I wrote my book was so I've got a personal reference for when these questions come up. <laughs> that I can just read it so it was off the top of my head. But I answer this question the other way. Like, when shouldn't you put extra money into super? And like kind of what you said, if you're saving for a first home to live in, excluding the first home super save scheme, if you've got a heap of consumer debt you want to pay off, if you've got some immediate lifestyle goals, like could be, and a lifestyle goal is we want to put the kids through Mm. university or whatever. So I think you need to write down um, reasons why you shouldn't. Mm. Now, conversely, if, you know, the way I do the Glenn James spending plan, it's a bottom up budget. So we list all our expenses because I believe every Australian has, and they're not the same amounts, but we've all got accommodation costs, we've got food costs, we've got transportation costs. So once we factor in our life expenses into our life, and then we go, okay, there are our costs to exist. This is our income. Hopefully there's leftover. Mm. That leftover amount we can put towards investing for the future, lifestyle, bonuses, and all that stuff. If you do it all and it washes up, so you've got $500 left over a month to invest for the future and you don't have any immediate lifestyle goals like saving for a new lounge or saving for a first home and you want to go, well, I've got $500 a month. I want to invest for the future. I don't know whether to do super or not. Well, can you do $100 into super mm-hmm. and forget about it? Yeah. <laughs> like, it all helps. It does. And all that <laughs> I mean, people yeah. get a bit obsessed about, oh, super great because of the compounding. It's going to compound for 40 years. Well, the thousand dollars that you pay off your credit card, compounding is not exclusive comp- to super. That's though. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that ev- everything you don't spend will compound. Hey, there's yeah. Just on that, there's a question here from Nathan Andrew. If super is essentially investing in a fund, is it better to invest in other index funds or to simply pump more money into super? And that's kind of what I want to touch on. Like, if you're if you've been working for ten minutes, you've got an, you've got a super fund in Australia. Mm-hmm. You're an investor. You've got money that's, right. that's flagged for you, invested for your future. It just so happens there's a government-mandated shell around that mm-hmm. to say you can only get the money out if you want to buy a boat during COVID <laughs> <laughs> and do a false declaration or once you meet a condition of release and get to your preservation age. So, we're all investors, but it does go back to that thing of what's our lifestyle goal mm-hmm. And but I've I think got- that's the I think that's the misunderstanding with what super actually is. Mm. Super is effectively if you're putting it into an industry or retail fund, you're kind of going into an index fund anyway. There's a bit of difference around the the edges, but you're going into it. You're going into broadly a diversified equity, you know, property bonds. You're yeah. going into a diversified portfolio. Yeah. yeah. But although most. Um, and there's a question here from Victoria. Uh, Jow, I might throw to you, John. Yeah. And we remember Vince and I bite back, so just be careful with your words. But um, if, you, <laughs> if you're investing into industry super funds in Australia, more often than not, you're going into an actively managed fund with almost half of it unlisted. Yep. So, and this is just this whole educational piece, right? Yeah. Um, so the question here. Hi, Glenn. At what dollar value would you recommend having your super balance managed by an independent financial advisor rather than through an industry fund? As in, is it best to take this approach when you are younger and have a smaller balance to aggressively grow it? Or is it best to have it managed this way when you're older 
and what about uh, and what amount slash balance should it be before your super be managed that way? I.e., is there a minimum of five hundred or a million dollars to be managed by a financial advisor? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So, do you want to start having a? Chew? I'll go first because you're kind of you're kind I'm of biased, biased on this one, yeah. Um, yeah, look, well, I, don't I, think, I do have a dog in the race, or yeah. a horse in the race. Yeah, look, I don't think I don't think it necessarily depends on how much money you have to, you know, to sort of sit up and take control over where your money's invested, and and having a um, making a conscious decision on where your super is invested. I mean, that kind of goes back yep. to that av- active investment strategy um it doesn't mean you have to move it in and out of something every second day but you know having it whether you've got it with a, a an advisor or you've got it in a in a you know an industry or retail fund someone is managing it for you um mm. i think i think what tends to happen is and you can tell me if i'm i'm wrong but i think what tends to happen is as you move through various life stages as you as you as you um you know have kids and start having school fees and other expenses in your life you kind of need that advice to not just work out where your super's invested but see how you should be managing your money better how you should be structuring things and that's where the advice piece comes in rather than to say oh you should be in that super fund instead of that super fund um, so I think there's probably more to it. Um, and, and usually when you're at that sort of, you know, when you're sort of moving through those life stages, that's where there is typically more more capital available for yeah. investment purposes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That, you know, when you start out, if you've got five, ten, fifteen thousand, 15,000, the biggest thing that's going to affect your, ret- your returns is how much you put in mm. and what your asset allocation is. The more you have, the more the benefit of advice is. Um but you know, almost everyone could benefit from advice. The problem is getting it at the right price. So if you've got five thousand dollars in your super fund, you probably shouldn't be paying two thousand or five thousand dollars a year in advice fees. Um, so from a life shaper perspective, you know, we would typically see twenty thousand as a an amount we're paying four hundred dollars a year in advice fees would make sense. Yeah, when I had my practice, I was kind of like. 50,000-ish, yeah. but the world has changed. There's a lot of cheaper, more cost-effective funds. But I, w- I would just probably point out a couple of things here. Number one, not everyone needs financial advice for the same thing. Correct. So, And investment advice, sorry, and financial advice is not the same thing as investment advice. Most financial advice is not about investments. It's about structuring your life. Yeah, so I would probably say, yeah, number one, if you're educated, dialed in, and even, you you know, you've looked at, you listened to this episode or the one with John, you're like, oh, I really like Superhero, I can see and I understand that they invest that, knock yourself out. <laughs> Their website says they don't pay commissions to financial advisors and you haven't updated that yet, are you going to? Anyway, keep going. Um, well, that would be illegal. Exactly. <laughs> well, does it, exactly, so we don't do it. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. good to hear. There's another, and I mentioned this. You don't the other one. A, in the office either. There's another. There's a, of course, <laughs> of course not, because that would be illegal. Um, but there is a, and I think I said this on the last one. Yeah. There is a range of super funds whose name I will not mention that do strange hand gestures that also say on all of their advertising they don't pay financial advisors. Yeah. So well, neither do we. Hmm. It's illegal. Fact. Yeah. There you go. Anyway. And has been for quite some time. Exactly. So I think... So it's not wrong. It's just a cheap marketing 
jab, hmm. where I think I would change the language to no financial advisor needed. That would, yeah, but see, yeah, I that don't know might if that's... Be deceptive in yeah, misleading. That's, the first that's, one's yeah. true. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. The first one is true. The second one... Also... Because we're, don't care. I'm a big advocate for getting <laughs> also don't care by financial the way. advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but what you were saying is you could have a you could be using superhero super to manage your super and mm. have an advisor. But have an advisor. And when I was a broker, I all all of my clients had a financial advisor. Mm. I was just running the investments. You're executing. I was just running the investments. I yeah. would give advice around the investments. They would give advice around the asset allocation and what mm. they're doing with their family trust and insurance and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, and that kind of leads into my second thing. Like this whole financial advice piece, like if you did have $50,000 or $20,000 in your super, you can absolutely go to a financial advisor and this goes to some business models won't be set up for you. Yeah. But, you know, Vince, like if you've got 20 grand in your super and you want to go to Vince tomorrow, his team will execute advice. Yeah. Yeah. So our, but, our average super balance among all our members is well under 50,000. Yeah. The question is, if you want some once-off advice and pay for it, that's awesome. If there's pressure for that advisor that they give you that pressure where you have to pay an ongoing fee of two grand a year or two, whatever that is, like you don't have to pay an ongoing fee. But if you value that service and maybe some accountability, I think it then goes to, well, if I want to pay a financial advisor for some broader things, like help me with my cash flow and budgeting, keep me accountable with this, which includes insurance, which includes super, that's a different discussion. And if you've got the time, interest and engagement to do all the research yourself, then you don't need an advisor. But most people don't have the interest or commitment to do that and will therefore benefit from an advisor. And I think it is that kind of um, thing like pre-retirement, absolutely, advice really does come into it because you've got key ages, you've got some key strategy around tax minimisation, some estate ramifications, setting up pensions, setting up all that stuff. Um, yeah, I'm pro-advice, but an advisor isn't always needed for everything. Correct. So, I think it's just horses for courses. Um, I'm just wondering, is there anything else we need to add around that comment? Um, yeah, so... But honestly, he, okay, here's the thing as well. If you've got 10 grand in a super fund and you've been working for five years or something like that or two years, the good thing is that the default options and the default type funds out there aren't malignant like there was a chance of it being malignant 20 years ago when there was an automatic contribution fee to an advisor. Like, it's pretty benign now. And I think realistically, a good thing in Australia, if someone just rocked up to a super fund, even got in a lifestyle stage fund or whatever, there's not going to be much harm. But when you look well, at it, depends the, on what you mean by by harm. Yeah, you know, uh, in terms of fee gouging. Yeah, that's true. Um, um, yeah, you know, when you look at the, at least at the my super level, the distribution of fees on the APRA heat map. Oh, it's know, wild. Yeah, eighty percent of funds are between 0.8 and one point two at fifty thousand dollars. So, yes, from the lowest to the highest, which, does is, make which it, is not cheap. Well, no, it's not cheap, but it's. Not a massive variation is, is the point I was trying to get to. That whether you agree that one percent is the right number or not, the difference between 
know, if you threw a dart at the 181 uh, funds, the odds are you're going to hit on something between 0.8 and 1.2, and that will make a difference, but it's not a life-changing difference. The difference between 0.3 and 2 is a massive difference. What does the what does the heat map look like for performance across my super though? Um, the closest correlate well it depends on how you cut it. If you if you just look at the eighty one numbers and rank them top to bottom, there's a massive difference. So probably over seven years, there's probably a five percent spread between the top of the bottom. When you sort it by asset allocation, or at least claimed asset allocation. <laughs> um, there's a much tighter correlation. and Just watch that, Mike. Vince, oh, and, and there is a peak at around 80 to 90% growth. Mm. It does drop off a bit at the 100% growth. I guess I'm saying for those who have just started their career, under 25, rocked up in a default fund, have $5,000, I don't think I would be... And I'm just talking, if I was talking to anyone in that cohort that I talk to... If you just learned the fund that you're currently in, that's a good start. And yeah, but if you but, didn't do any changes for two years to get up to thirty thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars, I don't know if it's moving the needle that much. No, if you got five grand and your my super delivers you seven percent return instead of eleven, it's not going. It's not going to change the world. Mm. Um, but my issue with that is. You know, those default funds when you start a new job and you're like, just, yeah, I'll just take whatever. Karen in HR has made a massive financial decision on your behalf without considering your personal circumstances, without considering what stage of life you're in. That's a massive decision. And, so what's, wor- sh- and what's worse, with stapling, the government said, well, actually, Karen, you're not making that decision. Karen from three jobs ago has actually <laughs> yeah. made that decision. So so <laughs> I actually have uh, I actually have an issue with, mm. you know, the, the way that that works because, you know, that's... That's like core to our business is is control and and having a say. I think you should have a say. Now, a lot of people either don't care or don't have the ability to make a decision, but just handing it off to someone else who has no financial experience at all, I think is is dangerous. Um, and the number one decision you can make is asset allocation. And... So if you think asset allocation is important and, and if you look at the APRA heat map, it accounts for about 70% of the difference in returns. It would be good to be able to know what asset allocation you're actually getting, which presumably you would at Superhero. Um, and for most of the large super funds, it's impossible to work out what it is today and impossible to know what it's going to be in the future because the bands are so wide. So, and that comes back to the point we talked about earlier about, well, the government's given you all this choice, but you don't actually have the information to make the choice. The problem with, so I think Seth Godin said, like, the problem with space is there's just too much of it. Like, the problem with choice is <laughs> you get decision fatigue, That's right? right, the curse of too much choice. Um, like, can't we just sell all white cars? Anyway. Uh, well, we could take the European solution and just roll super into the social security system and instead of making 2% Medicare contribution, you make a 9% um, social security contribution and the government looks after you. I'm not sure that's the Australian way, mm. but that is the alternative. Mm. 
there's a question here. Um, Hayden Jared said, should a 23-year-old set their superannuation to 100% high growth? No. And sorry, the reason I say that is, I mean, that, 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 that's one of the few questions in financial advice that the answer isn't, it depends. Mm. Um, the reason, and it's... So just, just to be clear, a high growth portfolio is probably... No, you said 100% like, growth, didn't you? 100%, oh, 100% high growth. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I thought you said 100% growth. So that would um, be, say, 90-10. Yeah, yes. So yeah, 95. And the point I was about to make, sorry, I misunderstood the question, but the point I was going to make that if some growth is good, more growth is necessarily better. And 100% growth is not likely to give you a better risk-adjusted return than 90-10. But this goes back to like all these people that set up their investment portfolios with 100% growth because they're building their own uh, ETF portfolios. Well, in your portfolio, do you have a, a gold ETF or something? Or do you have a a, a bond or bond, a fixed yeah. interest ETF, or do you just go? I'll I'll go to Vanguard and VDHG, baby, like and just forget about the rest. Well, the average hundred percent fund in the My Super heat map underperformed the average eighty and ninety percent one over five, six, and seven years. And the reason why people is volatility, volatility. But with um, co- compounding returns going north. When it's 100% growth, you can get compounding negative returns mm-hmm. and it takes longer for a 100% fund to recover than if there was 20% of that fund in defensive assets. Yeah. And this is not just Glenn and Vince and John saying this. There are Nobel Prizes being awarded for this conclusion. Well, it's modern portfolio theory, exactly. basically. Mm-hmm. Just on the um, superhero thing, you guys don't have a – you're not – quote unquote and this is not a bad or good thing or whatever but there's no my super vibe in your fund is there no we don't have a my super yeah. product that's yeah. a, that's a pre- to, pretty expensive a, exercise isn't it it's a, yeah. cho- it's a choice it's yeah. a choice fund that's right you have to make a choice and this is why default in. choice bro huh? choice bro but there's risk like there would be a risk and this is the problem with this whole um, government saying these are the bad funds and these are the good funds we'll give an example colonial first state Lots of people have a, a model portfolio managed by a financial advisor that's been kicking goals forever, but just because they're a member of that trustee, they get a letter mm. to say your fund's rubbish because one option under the trustee's model didn't make the cut on the government's list. So it's just wild. Yeah. And in many ways, there probably isn't such a thing as a dud fund. There are appropriate funds and inappropriate funds. But to say it's objectively a dud... Um, but government There'll be very few in that. And this is the whole thing, like... Uh, if the fund's got high fees, low performance over a long time frame... But are you talking fund level yeah. or investment level? Right. Yeah, but, I mean, you say that. But if we were... Yeah, yeah. like a, account type level. Yeah. But you look at... The, if you're in a my super balanced for XYZ Super that has 3% fees and has returned 2% over the last 10 years and you've got Aussie Super that's done fantastically well. well yeah, except they're not you, to, you can't compare those because you don't know what your asset allocation is. So you don't know whether 2% is an appropriate return for that asset allocation or not. So it's you can't make the comparison by going fees plus performance. But that's the issue. But that comes back to the issue with the industry because I think I'm in a balanced fund and if, yep, if this exactly. one's called balanced A and this one's fund B that's also called mm-hmm. balanced, mm-hmm. 
the assumption is this balance is the same as that balance. Yeah. yeah. So let me give you how an example. If you if you start off with a three fund portfolio, let's move your mic. So you go um, bonds, Aussie equities, global equities, and then you add a real estate, global real estate. You should move some of your global equities into global real estate. Your MER's just gone up because that's a more expensive asset class to manage, mm. and but your return will almost your expected return will almost certainly go up. So fees is sometimes a proxy for asset allocation because some assets are just more expensive to manage. Property, real estate, but we're getting trained via TV ads exactly that and fees are really important, yeah. even though they are they, yes. But even though they aren't the cheapest fees in in the market. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. being trained to look at fees as that's right the and enemy. If, and if you read the Aware PDS, it's the only one of the eighty-one my super funds that actually discloses the truth that past fees are no indication of future fees, and that's true mm. because fees are actually calculated in arrears. Um, everyone discloses the past performance, no indication of future performance, and then goes on and says, "But we outperformed everyone else." Um, guys, you you can't run both arguments. The, just back on the um, with the government saying that's a rubbish fund and this is a good fund, uh, just a clear example, and I think this is what I was getting at before, at fund structure level now, you can't create... So you couldn't create a superhero fund at the moment by law and have a contribution fee to a financial advisor. Like, it's just not happening. Yeah, you can't do it anymore. Yeah, so the problem is... You know, if someone was in a legacy, the only the only contribution fees go to the tax office. <laughs> yeah, which is not or, a fee. Or, or unions. <laughs> if they, Sorry, or so. unions. Or unions. However, really, yeah, all, all of the big funds disclose payments to to unions. Giddy up, baby, um, and employer groups are to be to be balanced. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, but all I want to say that's is, member that's members' assets, members' money. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All I'm saying is Good. if somebody was 55 years old now and hadn't looked at an old AMP super fund they've got, that fund still could be paying a 5% contribution fee to an advisor, although probably not because they probably no, turned them gra- off. No, grandfather fees stopped as of last year too. Well, as of last. See, I'm a bit out of touch. Yeah. I think I think the all final, I, I think I the final to- con- grandfather fees went sure. either last year or this year. I guess my point is I want to unpack fund level to investment yes. option level. You could get a uh, an index top 200 ETF option in fund A and fund B, but both same type of investment, but one fund charges a $5 a month member fee yep. and the other fund doesn't. And the $5 member fee doesn't get counted in your... Um, returns. In your return. Yeah. Um, but the... Sorry, the point I was leading to with that was, you know, if we were sitting here twenty years ago, you would have you would have gone, M- well, maybe twenty five years ago, MTAA, best performing fund over decades, early adopter of infrastructure, you know, they would have been the number one fund for I- any in any report, and then they had a whole bunch of problems in the early two thousands. And REST was the number one for a very long time. REST got a marginal pass on the government's latest one. And their place has largely been taken by Aussie Super. So you can't 
set and forget and argue that, well, just because I had 10 years of above-average performance and I have low fees doesn't mean that's the right fund going forward. REST did particularly well until its 2007, eight numbers fell out of the 10-year numbers. But they changed their asset allocation at some point. Yeah. So they probably have the least growthy balanced fund. Mm. Mm. And it will, you know, that's why they did so well in the 10-year. based on what you've just said now, I don't know where to put my money. Well, isn't there only one answer? No, it's yeah, no, on your, of course. It's on your T-shirt. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> super hero. Hero. <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, certainly for your listeners, you know, it's it creates confusion because, you know, what does it mean? So what do fees mean to me? Well, they're very what do fees hard. mean? Yeah, but that's the hardest and, part. Okay, there's a question. And do they care? And do, does it, and do they matter? Because well, we are taught that they do over time. Well, yeah. they do matter. And, but and, only when you're comparing like with like. Yeah. So if... If and I'm, what is the right asset allocation is the other one. So if I'm comparing a fee-free, um, is it called student student super? That's a, Uni super. No, no, no. no, no, um, it, it's, ST, no. no it's called student, yeah, student super, I think, there's a which ton. is free if you're under $5,000, but it's investing in cash. Yeah, it's cute. So, okay. So yes, it's fee-free, but you're going backwards every year because you're not in growth assets. Yeah, you're so, doing worse than... So fees on their own tell you nothing. So I just want to say this: uh, Shantanu Barbine said, "How can I pass, how can I compare super products more specific to their fees and performance?" It's very ambiguous. Yes, yes it, is. it is. And I guess unapologetic plug, and a thank you to everyone who's bought my book. But I wrote this book in a way that we walk down the garden path, and we need to start with understanding investments. Mm-hmm. Cash, inflation, shares, bonds, property. Then we move to model portfolios. Just then- to be clear, inflation is not an asset class. <laughs> no, sorry, but inflation the- bonds are. <laughs> yeah, but the correlation <laughs> yeah. with cash and inflation. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and because we need to understand basic concepts, and then we build upon that knowledge with okay, this is a model portfolio, mm. and this is why this portfolio does this, and you know, yeah, diversification. And that's, and that's, you know, going back to those questions, that's people don't understand that. Super is just an account type. That's exactly. Right. And then- It's still your investments. Once we understand how the world works, then we can wrap a wrapping on that investment. Mm. And then there's even a, a table in the book where I compare two or three funds and do the fees and there's space for you to call your own fund and ask them what the fees are mm. because it's just about education and understanding. It is. And understanding what you're looking at. Um, we asked a lot of comments in the group, Facebook group where people make comparisons between ETF returns and super returns, ignoring the fact that the ETF return is pre-tax, pre-tax post-fees. The super return is post-tax, post-fees. post-fees, before member fees. Yeah. And they're almost impossible to compare. Yeah. And honestly... It is very hard and ambiguous. It's not easy. Well, what do you do? I, and to see be honest, an advisor. Pete, well, you can see an advisor, or you can look for new type of offerings, like yeah. you know the one that's on the lounge over there. Mm-hmm. What up, superhero? <laughs> <laughs> Just everyone. Anytime we do an episode, I actually wrote this on our website once, like it'd be a bit of a disclosure thing. It's like we disclose if things are responsive episode, but if in doubt, assume every time my mouth is open. 
it's an ad. <laughs> Just if in doubt. <laughs> but I think but it's, it's the bloody way, tough. It's hard. The, the way that we the way that we think about it is whether you've got super in your in your whether you've got cash in your pocket, cash in your bank account, or cash in your super fund. Which you know, not necessarily just cash, but mm. but money, right? It doesn't matter what. It doesn't matter where it is. It's mm. all yours. So, so if you think of super as a managed investment scheme, and it's going into an index fund or a managed fund or whatever it is, mm. then like you think of that outside of super as well. So, would you take all of your money and put it into a single? ETF or a single managed fund and use that as your saving or, or because because what we've seen, we've got 175,000 people on our platform mm. investing in shares and ETFs, right? Thanks for emailing them with a copy of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> It'll go out on socials as well. Sweet. Um, the, the um, I, I guess the mentality is that, you know, people think that, you know, people are investors Mm. With their money, mm. but super is this other thing that is over there that they shouldn't touch. What all all we're doing is saying that's your money too. If mm. you want to manage it like you're managing the rest of your money, yeah, come go over, go yeah. for it. Yeah. There the only it is. difference is tax and fees. It's the same asset, whether it's Where, whether it's inside or outside. Yeah, yeah exactly. The only difference is tax. And yeah. fees. Well, but, and but you're seeing you see the you see the the wealthy, you know, the one percent who go and set up a tax efficient self managed super fund. Um, you know, and they want to choose what investments. That you know, I guess it's that democratization piece, right? Well, let's go to this question here um, from George Frederickson: Is self-managed super a viable option, or a risk and effort not worth taking? And I, this is my kind of view. I think you would only consider self-managed super for a couple of reasons. Number one. You've got a burning desire to buy real property mm-hmm. with your retirement savings, like number one, which is getting harder if you want leverage. Mm-hmm. Like well, number two, you've got a very complex estate planning situation, multiple kids with multiple partners, and you just need that extra layer of trustee discretion or control or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or number three, you've got significant wealth in your super, which is not really going to be a big thing for a lot of our listeners. And if there is that significant wealth, you have um, there would be an argument for scale and fees and overall savings, and maybe number four, a combination of all of them. And if you did want to um, invest in a, a sub three hundred ASX listed entity or something that is a little bit more sex and violence with, so like for example, John, there could be someone who works for a company that's listed and they want to buy shares in the company they work for, mm-hmm. well, you can't do it with a trustee like yours because you've got to manage risk and all that for your yeah. members. So, all in all, I think the argument for self-managed super in Australia is becoming less and less and less because yeah. you can still use wrap the, accounts. Exactly. Yeah, there's, exactly. There's, there's nothing you can do with a self-managed super fund for most people that a wrap won't do for you and a wrap will almost always be cheaper unless... Yeah, you you want to invest in something that's not listed on a, a regular stock exchange or available on a wrap? Not a lot. Um, you want to do big amounts of crypto? How how wise that is? Another question. You want to buy real estate? You want to invest in um, peer to peer lending? You want to buy um, invest in collectibles? 
and that's getting harder. There's not a lot of things that you can do with a self-managed super fund that you can't do. Do you have a self-managed fund? I'm in the process of winding it up. Really? Yeah. 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 Just uh, it'd be good, just because I, I know a lot of uh, our customers wouldn't know what a wrap is. Mm. Um, a wrap is effectively like They're a, basically in one. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 superhero super is is you know I guess gives you gives you some of the the, um, the same features. So it's you know it's a I guess it's a it's a platform that allows you know typically a wrap platform is is an advisor based platform. Yeah, m- many of them you could only buy through an advisor. Mm. Um, there are a couple you can buy direct. It's not, they don't make it particularly easy, but you can. Um, the official name is Investor Directed Portfolio Service, which probably describes what it is a little bit better than RAP because mm. it's a platform that you or your advisor or two of you together choose what to invest in, mm. which is a lot like Superhero. Yeah, so superhero super product is is effectively that where where you can choose you can choose the investments. We don't need that. We've taken that advice intermediary out of the picture. Mm. Um, it's not to say you can't still have a mm. financial advisor. Can you deduct but it advisor fees from your platforms? No, we don't. We don't have that yeah. functionality. You don't do commissions either on super, do you? We don't. No, no. it's illegal. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> proud of you. Yeah, yeah, you're not allowed to. I'm like that um, <laughs> that comedian who just recalls jokes yeah. like an hour into yeah. like a. Um, well, that's when you get the punchline, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. But I mean, the like a rap account. I'll we'll use an example: Macquarie Rap or BT Panorama or whatever. Two of the biggest. Yeah. So you would set up the account. There would usually be a they call it a CMA or it used to be a CMT cash management account, cash management trust, which was a it would give you an an account and BSB number. You could send money direct onto platform mm-hmm. and many um, brokerage accounts have a dedicated cash management account and that's the cash hub for everything you do and there's basically there would be hundreds of investments to choose on bt and macquarie wrap so they basically they go to different investment houses and fund managers all over australia all over the world and say do you want to be on our wrap platform and you can basically choose listed unlisted um they've got the function to do model portfolios and that could be you know, like Lonsec used to have, and a lot of them, they probably still do, like a an Australian equity model portfolio. And this is the percentage allocation to these Australian equities. You can set the wrap account to automatically invest a per- percentage to that model portfolio. The advisor could log in and go rebalance, click, click, or click, go, rebalance. It would sell and buy and rebalance the portfolio. But again, wrap accounts, probably more needed for high net wealth because we've now got the technology and the products available with ETFs and uh, funds like that, that it probably is getting less needed. Although my super is on a wrap account and has yeah. access well, to they, unlisted. Yeah. I mean, they've got a lot, che- they've got a lot cheaper yes. and a lot more flexible. And there's a few things that are really important that they provide despite just being a, effectively a piece of software. So the first thing they do is allows you to combine both listed and unlisted. And there just aren't enough ETF products. There aren't ETF products on all the indexes you would need to meet a proper fund, a proper portfolio. So um, small cap value is a good example. Right? Yeah. There isn't an index for a start. Lowest index in Australia only goes to the bottom of the 300, really, mm. um, in a meaningful sense. So if you want to invest in small cap value, you've got to buy an unlisted fund. Which is active. Uh, which usually. are active. Um, well, there's no index. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
if you want to buy that, um, if you want to go buy it direct, you've got to fill out a form. And, and probably have 25 grand. And w- most of them have minimums. Mm. And you then have to, so, that, so that's one. Two, it gives you access in many cases to a different class of funds, which are a class of units which have lower costs. And thirdly, it gives you consolidated tax reporting. So if you only want to buy listed assets, ShareSite does a pretty good job at providing you with your tax returns or tax um, accounting. But once you've got an unlisted asset, well, ShareSite doesn't deal with unlisted assets, so where do I get consolidated reporting? A rapid account is the answer. Superhero. Do you have unlisted funds as well? No, we've got consolidated tax reporting, though. But, but not for unlisted funds. There's no well, they charge don't. for that. <laughs> they don't do. I, I was telling you, he doesn't charge a member fee for the... A, the trading platform. The trading platform. Yeah. Like, so I'm effectively getting ShareSite for free. Well, you don't need... I, you don't I, need I, I didn't say it. The no, equivalent. But you don't need... Like, if, if I wanted a investment in ordinary money um, with Superhero... Yeah, we built the oh, yeah. whole trading platform, yeah. so you can sign up, trade. We run all uns- but, un. But the um, only thing is, and someone mentioned in the group the other day, you guys, there's no function for DRP. In well, your, you should be in the DRP anyway. No, but that aside, <laughs> that's what I say. Yeah, I, I, I'm not an advocate for DRP anymore, given that yeah. you can't. People really want it. It's coming. Oh, it is. It's, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People. <laughs> well, there you go. You heard it here, probably third. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's coming. Um, uh, I agree. You know, I've seen. I've seen over my career. You know, I'll, I'll use Combank as an example. I, you know, I hope I'm not throwing them under the bus. But you know that that they'll announce a, a DRP of eighty dollars, and then the share price goes to you know seventy six. Yeah. And everyone's getting stock way way higher. Yeah. Um, where you, otherwise you would have gotten the cash and, and yeah, and just so it doesn't yeah. it doesn't actually. I, I just don't I mean, do if, it. If I went down to the pub and, and suggested to someone that I met there that they buy CBA shares in six months' time at a price they don't know what it's going to be, yeah, would you? Would anyone sign up for that? And that's what you're doing with the DRP. Just on the rap thing. Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't actually finished with yeah. that discussion. We did get a bit waylaid. So, sorry. Consolidated tax report. No, that's a good point. Uh, c- consolidated tax reporting across listed and unlisted, um, oversight for your advisor and or your accountant. So if I want to give someone advice to sell BHP by Rio, um, well, without knowing what your embedded capital gain in your BHP holding is, I can't actually make that sensible recommendation. Question, and I don't want to throw superhero under the bus any more than I usually do, but uh, it's a nice bus that we've got. Sure. Um, it's probably owned by CBA, the bus. Yeah. <laughs> the Just on the self-managed super fund thing, for those who are thinking like bigger terms, so a RAP platform, you can you can apply for a RAP platform with ordinary money yep. in your own name, or and that's what money. we call or super money. Or, super RAP. Or, or a super RAP. Yep. So it's a RAP platform with a superannuation trustee, <laughs> Or if you had a self-managed super fund, the self-managed super fund as a company or trustee can actually set a wrap account up. Yeah, an ordinary money wrap account. An ordinary money wrap account with a super fund. <laughs> so it's like this wheel within a wheel. So you, if you had a super fund that had significant wealth, you might have listed property, you might have a vintage wine collection, not allowed to drink till you've retired, and you might have a wrap account that the super fund owns. You do have to distribute to yourself first. Before you drink it. <laughs> exactly. Because whoever made up these super rules was obviously Catholic because they said you can have it, but you just can't take pleasure in it. 
Take that from an old Irish Catholic <laughs> man. Um, well, my parents paid a lot of money for that Catholic but, education. That's right. But the whole thing with the rap accounts, and this is the question that I want to ask Superhero, Vince, explain FIFO and the importance of it. Ah, now the, and I'm the, not, we are going very deep. Yeah, that's here. fine. And I'm not talking about I've got a job in the Western Australian <laughs> mines and I live in Sydney. So... Okay. FIFO and why is it important? Okay. So, so this comes. This is to getting to the point where tax planning starts becoming, and where this rap tax reporting starts adding some real value. So, when you sell an asset, will be done in ten, like like a BHP share. You're going to have a capital gains tax event, which may mean you make a gain or a loss depending on what you paid for it. And if you've been buying different parcels of it, each of those parcels has a different value. So let's assume you own 1,000 BHP that you've bought in 100 different parcels because you've been in the DIP for 20 years. You can choose which parcels to sell. And you've sort of got three options. You can do first in, first out or FIFO, not fly in, fly out, but first in, first out. So you sell your oldest parcel first. Or you could do... To try and take advantage of the 12-month... Capital gains. Yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, yeah. it affects you 12, 12 months, and then secondly, it may or be... You know, well, it's likely to be lower cost base, so it's likely to trigger a higher gain. Hopefully. But obviously with yeah. the 12-month yeah. discount. Um, or you could do LIFO. <laughs> Which would be last in, in first, first out. out. Um, and there's a few other options, but they're the two main ones. Um, and most of them will also allow you to go click a max gain or a min gain mm. button, which mm. says we'll pick the parcel with the maximum gain, which can be good. So if you're selling... But, okay, just... just I thought really you can't change that. those... I thought you can't change it year to year. No, but you, you can change it by asset. Yeah, okay. But I, I just want to say on that type of... You know, people get their freaking knickers in a knot. It's like, oh, I don't want to pay a financial advisor to manage my portfolio. Oh, I don't want to... Well, just that option in itself could pay for itself Absolutely. a million times over. So... I think everyone just needs to chill out and making these assumptions of the value of financial advice, particularly, you know, if you did have a larger portfolio, the advice would pay for itself because of the Absolutely. use of the tech. If I bought 20 CBA shares on Superhero Ordinary Money and three years later bought another 20 CBA shares on Superhero Ordinary Money and then I went in and clicked sell five shares, what parcel is it selling? Yeah, so we so we run all of our consolidated tax reports based on a FIFO method. Yep. Which is pretty standard. Yep. Yeah, so we use FIFO. But yep. if you went and bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold BHP 50 times, there's actually multiple lines under your BHP holding. So we itemize every single holding out, as you we were saying. So well, it is a fully consult like it's the full report. So would, um, all of the um, individual... Yeah. And I think I will move my trust account over to Superhero, <laughs> to be honest. Like, I'm just lazy. Maybe we should charge you a member fee. Yeah. Um, so they're all- I'm invented. only moving to Superhero- you suggested if, it. I'm only moving to Superhero if you pay commissions to financial advisors. <laughs> but you're not a financial advisor. No, I know. You're and a that, retired financial uh, yeah. advisor. And no, that but, would be illegal. Yeah, exactly. But I think, okay, so if I use CBA or NABtrade or, you know- insert your broker here, would they automatically by default do FIFO? Well, they don't do any tax reporting. They don't do any tax reporting. So, you'd, you'd, yes. you'd have to either pay your accountant to do it or subscribe mm. to something like ShareSite. Um, and even then, um, you need the premium product to forecast what it's going to be before you actually do it. Yeah. And this is my kind of leading Standard question. broker is transaction reports. It'll tell you all 
just transaction. Yeah. Just every line. Yeah. So with big enough a spreadsheet and enough time, you could work it out. Mm. But I don't recommend it. Gosh, what else? Yeah, so Wayne Ellery actually asked, please explain pooled super funds and how unrealistic capital gains work. So, you know, my run-of-the-mill insert industry funds here... Well, that's actually, that's a good point, and actually, people do get quite confused about this. Mm. So, when we talked earlier about your super performance report in, is net of tax, um, the unit price that you get quoted or the crediting rate is net of prov- actual tax paid and a provision for tax that will be paid on the gain when it's realised. So, if you buy in, let's assume that Australian Super buys 100 BHP and it goes up by $10 and pays a $5 dividend. Well, the $5 dividend gets taxed in the current year, which it would if you held it anyway, but the $10 gain, there's a notional tax charged against it before they work out the unit price. So there's 15% taken off that. So it means that the, the bal- your balance goes down by the amount of tax that would be paid if it were sold today. Now, some people go, ah, does that mean I'm not getting the returns on the three the tax because I've notionally paid this tax? And the answer is you do because that sits as a liability in the underlying fund. So when Aussie Super says I've got $10 billion of assets or whatever, the $70 billion, whatever the number is, um, that's net of a future tax liability. But the cash for that or the assets backing that future liability are still there. So it's like a little bit of gearing. Mm. So that's why a super fund return will usually look better than the corresponding... Ordinary money. Yeah, because it's got... A, it's taking account the cash value of the franking credit, and B, it's semi-leveraged by the amount of this tax reserve. But is there an instance where I could go into a fund and actually be bearing the liability of someone else's capital gain. Well, it's included It's included in the unit, the unit price. price. So when you buy a unit in Australian Super, that the value of that unit includes all the assets that are actually there, less the liability for future taxes. Mm. Um, and then when it actually gets paid, the money gets taken out of the bank and paid to the ATO. So what you're buying is a whole bunch of assets plus a liability, but you're getting a credit for the liability. It's a bit harder in um, ordinary money stuff where this provision isn't made. So the net tangible assets of a the Vanguard Australian Equities Fund is the actual value of the underlying assets, ignoring the embedded capital gain. So when they then go and sell it, so you could buy in on that 29th of June and they will do a notional distribution effective on the 30th of June where you'll be getting a distribution that includes gains made before you joined. Yeah. So, I mean, it works both ways. You could be getting a loss as well. But this is why the the absolute investment purists will model portfolio direct equity. Yeah. But your trade-off is lots more brokerage lots more admin mm. and um, difficulty getting your precise balance. So, yes, if you had 
um, one and a half million dollars, you could buy a marketable parcel of every share that's in the Vanguard Australian Equities Fund. Mm. I don't want the brokerage on. You're just not going to be able to build that portfolio as cheap as Vanguard can. That's right. So mm. I don't know what the brokerage on 200 shares is. You can probably do the five, math. Five bucks at super. So that's a thousand dollars in brokerage to invest. Yeah. Well, invest your one and a half million. Yeah, well, whereas would, you could have bought significantly. You could have spent five dollars and bought one and a half million dollars of Vanguard. Exactly. Um, does Superhero have a retirement pension phase yet? No, we don't. It's only an accumulation account. Will so you be? In the that. future, You've got yeah. 20 years too, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Look, at our average age is, is about 37. So, yeah, yeah we've got some time. So, um, there's a question here from Emma Jane. Like, what happens uh, – well, how do you actually use your super once you reach retirement? Now, that, that's a great question and another good reason for having a ramp. Mm. Um, because as we just mentioned, the tax on the future gain is already embedded in the unit price. So, if you're in a public offer fund – and you hit age 60 and go, I want to start a pension now, what you actually do is you redeem, in most cases, you redeem your accumulation units at the net of tax price and you buy retirement units where it won't pay tax anymore. But you've effectively paid the tax. If you were in a wrap account, it's just a journal entry. Mm. So there's no redemption and reinvestment. It's just... Oh, I want to start a pension now. Yeah. So that can be a material amount of money. And that's why back to when you are coming to, I reckon if you're five to 10 years out of retirement, you need to start the advice conversation because there are some chess pieces that need to be moved that might only be able to be moved at certain times. And and I will say with, with pension, so basically this is how I'm actually going through this at the moment with my parents. Uh, I've booked them to see a retirement uh, planner um, in two weeks. And when you retire, you don't just get your super paid out, you know, 450 grand, bam, it's your bank. bank. <laughs> that doesn't happen. What happens is you would- You could, but it would be done. You could, but you just, it's a non-starter. What happens is you would set an amount that you need to live on each week. And I'll just say $1,000 a week as an example. And well, we, we know we're getting $300 a week from the government age pension. So we need to supplement that with a $700 a week payment from our super. But in the background, the super account gets moved and transitioned into what we call pension phase, which essentially means as the earnings still grow and get invested as they grow, there is zero tax on the growth, but you need to withdraw a minimum of around 4% each year. So the government trade-off is you can have the money in pension phase growing tax-free, but you need to take some money out and spend it. So that $700 a week pension payment will also be tax-free as well. Now, one thing you can do at home is if you have a look at um, Australian super uh, returns in the past of balanced growth, accumulation phase and balanced growth pension phase, the pension return will be a higher percentage return because they haven't paid um, tax on those units. So effectively- And that's where things like franking come in. Yeah. And that's right. So we had- um, Massive benefit. Yeah. When I was an advisor back in the day, um, I would have a a bit of a satellite portfolio of a a highly um, concentrated fund to um, Australian equities that have high dividends because it's a, it's a good strategy in pension phase. Because if you had $100,000 in ordinary money of 
CBA shares and you didn't have an income, so your tax rate was zero, when you get your franking credits, you'd actually get an actual cash refund from the ATO of that tax. So uh, it's a different beast and, you know, I have started planning out... And you can also consider things like annuities, deferred annuities, allocated pensions. We're actually starting a new podcast series called Retire Right um, and... Yeah, we're going to get into all this stuff so you can give to people in your life that are over 55 or if you're over 55 listening to this still, um, there is that podcast series coming that we just talk about the retirement piece that we all need to know about uh, in the future. Um, have you, You've got both a hard two o'clock. Yep. yep. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just keep going to yep. two if that's yep. all we've right. We've got 50 minutes. Yeah. Um, there's a question here. Um Let's have a look. Yeah, he's, I just want to touch on the self-employed thing. Joe Elizabeth said, um, ideas for self-employed uh, for super. Is it okay to just deposit lump sum at the end of the financial year just before um, 30 June? Uh, yes. yes. But, so, well, don't, but don't do it on the 30th of June. No, do it on the 20th <laughs> because... Yeah, Processing right. time. Yeah, so just a couple of things there. As a self-employed person, and I'll just talk from my own experience, as I was building my business, um, just for your own cash flow in your self-employed business, what you might do is you might say, oh, I'm drawing 60 grand a year or whatever. The nominal super thing is $6,000 a year. Or you might just go, look, I'm just going to set up an automatic monthly $500 a month and put that in my super account. After 30 June, that goes into your super fund as a personal contribution. After 30 June, you can log into your fund or um, some of them might still have paperwork. Most of them probably don't. What do you guys do with those um, telling the fund that you want to... It's an ATO. It's an ATO Notice of intent. Yeah, notice of intent to claim. To claim, yeah. Um, I mean, my super fund, before I moved it, it, I logged in and just ticked and selected the amount. So, basically what happens is you put that $6,000 goes into the fund as a personal contribution. At the end of June, you tell the super fund that you intend to claim that $6,000 as a personal contribution. So, therefore, as a self-employed person, you can claim that $6,000 on your tax return. However, the fund... Um, will take the contributions tax of 15% from that money. And by self-employed, you mean... Sole trader. Yes. As yeah. A, yeah. Whereas if you're operating through a company, this new STP, what are they called? Straight, um, uh, straight through processing. Straight through processing. Yeah. And single-touch payroll. Single-touch single payroll. Single-touch payroll, that's, that's the, the word one. I was thinking. Not straight through processing. Um, you sort of have to be paying your, your 10%. Yeah, as you pay your income, yeah, the days when um, yeah most people would yeah just take the money out of the till, and then on the thirtieth of June their accountant would work out how much of that should be wages and how much should be mm. directors' fees and how much super. Um, you can't really do that practically anymore. Yeah, so what I used to do, I used to do that because my last business uh, it was a unit trust um, and. I wasn't quote unquote incorporated. Um, and anyway, fast forward, now I'm an employee of Simo Interactive. Um, I no longer um, do a monthly amount personally to my super fund uh, because I get to the, without telling my salary, um, the cap may or may not be met each financial year due to SG. 
Um, but if you are, like, for example, if your employer, uh, it's kind of, if you were incorporated and you were paying yourself a salary that the SG was 20 grand a year, you might just go, look, at the end of the year, like if you're earning that much, seven and a half grand probably isn't a huge amount of money in your business. At the end of the year, you can say, well, I've put through 20 grand through SG. I'm just going to throw in another seven and a half grand and file a notice of intent to claim as a personal contribution. Now, the and there art- are time limits for doing that. Then. That's right. Just do it in July <laughs> or just speak to your accountant. Now, the other side of the coin, when I was sole trader, non-incorporated and all that, I would do it monthly just for my own cash flow because cash flow is everything. If you wanted to wait till the end of the year and just go, all right, it's June, I'll throw in 20 grand or 27 and a half grand up to the... Is it 27 and a half? Yeah, it's gone yeah. to 27. I mean, um, I, I just put mine through as the part of the whole company payroll and it's just out of sight, yeah. out of mind. I reckon you need to as a self-employed person, get to the point where you're cash flowing it monthly because if you don't, you'll spend it on something else. And the problem I've seen over the years of dealing with small business owners, they get to age 50, they get to age 60 and they've got no money in super. They've got all their money in their business. Market things change. Business is worth nothing now and they've got no other assets. So as a small business owner, you need to still diversify your wealth and take cash off the table. So, I would really encourage that as well. All right. A couple of quick random quick fire questions. There was a question here. um, Stacey Morris, at what income level would it start to be beneficial for tax purposes to salary sacrifice? I usually say if you're earning under 50 grand, do a personal contribution because if you're earning under $41,000, you'll get the full $500 match from the government Mm. and that tapers up to around $51,000. So as a general rule of thumb, look at the ATO website, see your priest, your accountant, your financial advisor and your life coach. Um, Under 50 grand usually works out more effective to personal contribution. And there's also, you know, if you're... If your top marginal rate is 34, including Medicare, which means you're earning under, what is it? Is it 51? Whatever the number is. There's it's 51, something seven, like that. Something, yeah. something. If you're earning under that, the tax advantage going into super, yeah, paying 15% instead of 34, it's not a huge... Usually, if if you're getting started in your life, and you're earning $50,000, it may be a struggle to pull together extra money to yeah. salary, salary sacrifice. And the benefit's not huge. No, I think that money would be better used in your life to buy a course to train up more or to... Cause Pay off your credit cards, build and register. You are the most important investment in your life. You're a $2 million annuity walking around. Mm-hmm. So look after your bloody annuity. Ryan McKay says... Can you talk more about contribution splitting with your spouse? This is one cool bit of info I learned from your book. And I think this is one of the best hidden secrets in all of the land. And there's a whole bunch of strategies around this, um, especially if there's a big difference in age between the couple. And so the ability to... Well, most people think about it in terms of evening out the balance. Mm which is useful given that we now have a, a upper limit on 
a lifetime contribution limit. So if, you're, if one of you is going to get close to the lifetime limit, it might make sense to even them out. If one of you is older than the other, you might make sense to move it from the younger one to the older one so you get access to it earlier. Or you might want to move it from the older one to the younger one to get that to delicious get, to settling. Get, to get better access to the pension because super assets in accumulation don't get counted. For an asset, for, an, for, for age assets, pension. For the age pension. Yeah. And that's a common strategy which on the Retire Right podcast, we're going to talk mm-hmm. about strategies if there's a spouse age difference. And the other thing that, I mean, it's not directly related to spouse, spousal splitting, which just allows you to move 85% of your contributions to your spouse. Um, when you're going through a divorce and getting a settlement, um, yeah, the super balances get counted and um, you, know, you will think about whether you want the super balance or you want the home or other assets. And you know, many mothers in particular dud themselves by focusing on the family home and end up with this expensive house and no super. Yes, but there's a, an episode just recently called Money and Separation or Separation of Money. Where I, talk, I get separation anxiety from my money. Yeah. I talk with Fraser mm-hmm. and they've just gone through a separation mm-hmm. and she valued the certainty right now and took the home yeah. and the money outside of super. Yeah. Well, in most cases, there's this psychological desire to have a safe home for the kids. That's a natural human instinct. But often, um, I find that we get yeah, single mothers in their 30s, 40s with young kids and hugely expensive houses and no money to live on. Yeah, that's a, another can of worms mm. that we're not going to uncan no. right now. Um, last question. Um, Samantha uh, Doan, salary sacrificing and hex debt. I've heard some people getting... Uh, a bit of a tax bill at the end of financial year uh, with salary sacrificing with hex. How would you be able to explain how to this, how to avoid this stuff? Yeah. Now, this is one that people, I think, get a bit of unnecessary angst about. I've... So, the first point I would make... <laughs> We're both like... The first point I'd make is that salary sacrificing will not increase the amount of hex that you have to pay. That's the thing that people get. What it does do is it means that your employer will deduct less X from your pay and therefore you may have underpaid um, and it particularly if you're close to a threshold where the withholding amount changes significantly so if that is going to happen you know just work out what your contribution is before you start selling fact pricing and put the difference away I would say um, to be safe if you have hex debt and you want a salary sacrifice to super do a post tax personal contribution every month, then in July, tell your super fund that you want to make that a deductible contribution Mm -hmm. and claim that amount on your tax return. It's simpler, it's easier because effectively, just round numbers for those, if you are earning $60,000 a year plus super and your work was paying you, taxing you on 60,000 rates, including the hex uh, bit they have to take off. All of a sudden, if you salary sacrifice ten thousand dollars, work does not need to withhold any money on a fifty thousand dollar income. And then when you do the wash up at the end of the year for tax, you go, all right, well this is the tax that I've paid. No hex. Oh, you actually do have hex. You owe us money. 
So if in doubt, monthly contributions to your super, personal deductible, mm. and there's that trade-off. You don't get the increased cash flow throughout the year, but you get the certainty of not going to get a tax bill at the end of the year. So we might leave it there. Look, we've gone a long time. Uh, it's been a really great chat. We almost got through all of the questions uh, and got into some, some trouble along the way. <laughs> um, Vince, any closing thoughts on what we've talked about? And then I'll go to John for any closing thoughts. Yeah. I mean, um, super is becoming an increasing increasing part of our wealth. I think it's now a fifth of all household wealth in the country and we're still only 30 years into it. So, you know, if you were in the workforce between before 1992, you're going to have less as a percent of your income than someone who started later. Um, and it will only get bigger. And um, because it is such a big deal, you need to get engaged and you need to do something about it. Mm. Um, but bearing in mind that you ain't going to spend it for potentially 40 years, um, don't get too obsessed about fees and past performance. Look at the asset, well, work out what asset you need and make sure you're going to get it. And, um, but, you know, just pay attention to it. It's your money, just not yet. Sweet. John Winters, superhero CEO. There's yeah, three people left listening. <laughs> what are you telling them? And three of them are in this room. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. You know, it is your money. Um, I just recommend everyone make a conscious decision on where your super is invested. Look at where it's invested. It it, it may be fine where where it's been since your first job. It may you may have stumbled into into the right fund, but. Um, yeah, you know, I, I really think making a decision on where it goes, um, rather than letting someone else make that decision for you, um, you know, I think that that's really important. Um, so, yeah, that that's what that's what I'd say. Um, you know, it's not all about control. It's it's not you know that's not for everyone. Um, but you know, you 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 can make that decision on where to start out and and what you should you know where your 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 super should be invested. Yeah, and I would um, agree with both of you. Oh my gosh, I didn't press record. <laughs> I'm uh, but yeah, it wouldn't be the first time. Um, it, I don't know if I've not ever done that. Mm. Mm. I've done it. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's wild. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks, uh, John Winters, superhero. If you want to have a bit more of an understanding and listen to their platform we'll put a link in the show notes to the episode where we profiled them and thanks for partnering with what we're doing at M3 do you want to sponsor anything else of ours (laughs) see how we go sweet Um, and thanks Vince Scully from Life Sherpa bye bye thanks guys. guys We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.